The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into our beloved art form, drawing our content from a variety of different programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Leading up to this weekend's Met Live in HD broadcast of Puccini's Turandot, we are happy to present this pre-performance lecture given by Dr. Jeffrey Langford, the Assistant Dean for Doctoral Studies and Music History Chair at the Manhattan School of Music. As you would imagine, this lecture is chock full of historical insights and musical analysis that will give you an entirely different perspective on this wildly popular opera. In fact, Dr. Langford included a physical handout of musical examples for the live audience that he references at several points during the lecture. If you would like to download this handout so that you can follow along, you can do so at www.metguild.org slash podcast. Now please enjoy Dr. Langford's thoughts on Puccini's Turandot. Thank you all very much, and welcome this evening. Puccini worked on Turandot over a period of several years in the early 1920s, and then left the work unfinished, as most of you probably know, when he died in 1924. What I want to do this evening is to review the general history of opera at the turn of the century, in order to see where Puccini was coming from, and then to analyze the various strengths and weaknesses of this opera and their possible impact on Puccini's inability to complete the work. Now, throughout the second half of the 19th century, or maybe I should say around the middle of the 19th century, opera styles in France, Italy, and Germany were all vastly different, reflecting various national preferences. Italians loved great singing and therefore preferred operas with arias and ensemble numbers that showed off the voices of great singers. Germans, on the other hand, preferred operas that were heavily centered on the orchestra at the expense of the voices. And in France, scenic spectacle and huge choruses were what audiences wanted to see. By the beginning of the 20th century, or maybe the late 19th century, these various national styles had begun to merge into a new international style inspired mostly by the revolutionary music dramas of Richard Wagner, in which arias and ensembles were eliminated in favor of the use of a continuous semi-melodic style that Wagner called Sprechgesang, or literally speech song. The strength of this new operatic style was that it created a more realistic and continuous flow to the drama as opposed to the traditional Italian approach to opera that was plagued by several things. Number one, the constant interruption of the progress of the drama by those moments of emotional reflection that we call arias. In other words, this I call the action-reaction style of opera. Action goes on in the recitative, everything stops, the singer plants his or her feet and sings to the audience about how they feel. So it's a continual seesaw battle between the two. Number two problem with Italian opera, the constant interruption of the drama or dramatic flow uh, by audience applause after big set pieces. And by the way, in the 19th century, that kind of audience applause actually caused the singers to come out of character and to move down to the stage (laughs) and take a bow or two right in the middle of the opera. And then, of course, if everybody loved it enough, they'd sing the aria again. (laughs) This doesn't make for good continuity. Number three problem with Italian opera, the constant shifting of musical textures from speech-like recitative to song-like lyrical numbers like arias and ensembles. And lastly, Italian opera had never had any kind of large-scale musical form. It was simply a string of nice set pieces all sort of run together with recitative. 
Now, in the operas of Verdi, we begin to see the first evidence of a compositional reconsideration of these Italian operatic problems. From about 1850 to the end of his career in the 1890s, Verdi experimented with ways of creating greater musical flow in his operas. Quite independent of Wagner, he achieved this, uh, or I should say he achieved his own kind of musical continuity, not by eliminating arias, but by blending the end of one aria or ensemble into the beginning of the next with the use of short musical bridges, sometimes purely instrumental and sometimes things that included the voice as well. I'm going to give you a quick little example of how this works from Otello. Here in the second act of Otello is the famous quartet with Otello, Desdemona, Iago, and, and Emilia. And you will notice that the end of the quartet bridges without a stop into the duet that follows it, the duet between Iago and Otello. So listen to how this works. End of the quartet. Okay, now you can see what this does is it effectively prevents the audience from hopping in, jumping in, and applauding, and therefore the thing keeps going. Okay. Now, in addition, Verdi experimented with ways of eliminating the jarring contrast between aria and recitative by relying on Wagner's arioso style of melodic writing. The important difference, however, is that out of this semi-melodic sameness, and you'll forgive my labeling Wagner as semi-melodic sameness, but out of that kind of wash of same stuff that Wagner writes, Verdi allows short moments of true lyricism to pop up. Not full arias, per se, but just short melodic high points, um, as in this example from Otello. This is also Act Two from Otello. This is the duet between Otello and Iago. Otello is singing here in this kind of arioso style, and then suddenly it sort of rises up into something more melodic, just for a brief moment or two. Listen to how this works. And then it will, after this is over, it doesn't last long, it falls back into Arioso again. So it relieves that melodic sameness that you find in Wagner. Some people like that melodic sameness, we'll leave that alone. Now, in order to address the problems of long-range formal unity in Italian opera, that is the large-scale structure of the opera, Verdi also began using recurring melodic motives. Not anything like the complex system of orchestral leitmotifs that Wagner employed, but simple tunes that appear in the opera somewhere at the beginning, usually, and then reappear later in the opera at dramatically significant moments. Great example of this is in La Traviata, when Alfredo first uh, confesses his love to Violetta in a little duet. There's a wonderful tune that comes up out of this. Let's hear this tune. <laughs>
Okay, you all know that tune. In the very next scene, she has a big aria in which she thinks about whether Alfredo might be the right person. He might be the person to relieve her of this lifestyle that she's leading. And as she gets to that moment where she thinks about whether Alfredo's the right person, this tune reoccurs. So this we refer to in Italian opera as thematic recall. Not quite the same thing as the symphonic leitmotifs of Wagner, but a way of structuring the opera uh, over the, longs, the long haul to hold it all together. Now, in order, I'm sorry, Puccini is usually thought of as a composer who carried the traditions of Verdi on into the 20th century, and to some extent, this is certainly true. But Puccini was actually a product of this new internationalization of opera uh, that was only partly based on Italian principles of vocal predominance. More than Verdi before him, Puccini incorporated elements of both German and French opera, along with other elements of early 20th century musical modernism, into his works. And Turandot is probably the best example of this kind of synthesis of operatic styles. And by the way, I should remind you all that in 1924, when Puccini died, um, we had already passed some of the landmarks of 20th century modernism. That is to say, the Rite of Spring in 1912 and uh, Piero Lunaire of Schoenberg in 1913. Uh, so some of the most modern stuff had already been written before Puccini got around to working on this opera. And he draws on all of this. Now the subject of Turandot is unlike that of any other Puccini opera. It is not a Verismo plot with characters drawn from everyday life like La Boheme. And it is not a, an opera of, with characters caught up in a lot of violent action, which is also sort of Verismo, as in Tosca. Nor is it a tragedy of two lovers parted by death, as in, again, La Boheme. Um, but after some tragic events early in the opera, this opera ultimately concludes happily. Um, yet it's clearly not a comedy. <laughs> despite the happy ending and the incorporation of some stock comic characters in the form of the three Chinese ministers, Ping, Pong, and Pong. So, what is this story? Very simply, it's a fairy tale. Uh, one that first appeared in Italy um, as a play uh, by its author Carlo Gozzi, who, by the way, wrote dramas that Mozart used for some of his librettos. And Gozzi described this as a dramatic fable. Gotzi actually borrowed this subject from one of the tales of the Arabian Nights, which accounts for its exoticism and Asian setting. Now, my own feeling is that fairy tales make difficult subjects for operatic adaptation. They often deal with unpleasant subjects, child abuse, child abandonment, <laughs> and equally unsavory characters like wicked stepmothers and wicked witches and wolves that eat people, etc., etc. You can probably think of your own horrors from fairy tales. And the story of Turandot is no exception. Now, at this point, you must indulge me as I review the plot with an eye to identifying the potential problems that such a story might present to any composer who wants to make an opera out of this. Central to the story, of course, is the Chinese princess, the beautiful Chinese princess, Turandot, who offers herself in marriage to any man who can answer three riddles. But the price of failure, of course, is the forfeiture of his head. In this gruesome fashion, the princess satisfies her hatred of men. So right away, Turandot would appear to be the villainess of the story. The opera opens in the midst of an execution scene, as the princess's last suitor is about to be beheaded. Amidst the crowd assembled to witness the execution, we meet the opera's hero, Prince Kalaf who stumbles upon his long-lost blind father, Timur, and his servant girl, Liu. 
We learn that Liu has long devoted herself to Timur uh, because years earlier, Prince Kalof had smiled at her and she's been in love with him ever since and she decided to stick around. <coughs> but instead of being touched by this devotion, Kalof is distracted by the arrival of the beautiful but cruel Princess Turandot. He decides then and there that he loves Turandot and wants to try to win her hand by answering <coughs> the riddles. Uh, this, it seems to me, is the first of several problems with this libretto. Admittedly, in opera, young men often fall in love with physical beauty as though that was the only measure of attractiveness in a woman. But this is an especially glaring case of crass physicality. <laughs> Liu, who has earned Kalof's love by devoting her entire life to his father for all these years, is callously overlooked in favor of the mean, misanthropic ice queen. What hope is there that Puccini, or any composer, could, through his music, make us like such an insensitive brute as Prince Kalof? First problem. Now, as the opera unfolds in Act Two, Turandot asks her three riddles, and to her amazement and horror, Kalof gets them all right. But not wanting to force Turandot into an unwanted marriage, he offers to sacrifice his own life if she can discover his name before the next daybreak. So in Act 3, Kalaf discovers that Turandot has threatened mass murder of her own people unless someone can learn the name of the mysterious prince. Here, the nature of fairy tales creates more problems for the opera composer. One might hope that the threat of mass executions would cause Kalaf to abandon his pursuit of Turandot. But no, determined to possess her, he forges ahead with his challenge despite the pleas from the ministers and the general populace. Now, how can Puccini possibly make a sympathetic hero out of a character who is so self-serving? Kalaf falls so short of the classic definition of the hero that only a major musical miracle on the part of Puccini could rescue him from total audience alienation. Next, guards drag in Timur and Liu, suspecting that they know the prince's name. Liu protects the old man by announcing that only she knows Kalof's name, but she's not going to reveal it. Soldiers then begin to torture her to extract the information they want, more good fairy tale stuff. But she resists, telling Turandot that it is her love of Kalof that gives her strength. Here, of course, Liu becomes inadvertently the heroine of the opera. Her self-sacrificial goodness steals the show and our sympathy. Meanwhile, Kalof again misses his chance to act heroically. As Liu is being tortured, he makes only a sort of half-hearted objection. Oh, please don't do that. As Liu is tortured, he makes this half-hearted objection, and then she, and she only, finally ends her suffering by stealing a knife from one of the soldiers and stabbing herself. Now that the only sympathetic character in the opera is dead, the story might just as well end. <laughs> and in fact, by the way, this is exactly where Puccini stopped composing, or more accurately, got stuck. And I'll come back to this in a bit. But as it turns out, of course, the fairy tale is not quite over. The bloodless Turandot and the callous self-serving Kalof are left on stage alone. He grabs her and kisses her, and like magic, she melts into an adoring girl, suddenly soft and pliant. Because this is a fairy tale, I suppose we're expected to accept this magic at face value. But from a purely dramatic point of view, Turandot's sudden change of character strains our willingness to take this story seriously on any level, even a metaphoric one. We are left only with a couple of plausible explanations for the situation. Number one, either Turandot loved Kalaf all along, which is completely out of character for her, or Kalaf's kiss possesses magical powers that somehow are like something on the order of the love potion in Tristan and Isolde. Now, this latter hypothesis may not be as far-fetched as it sounds because Puccini himself entered a cryptic note in the margin of his score saying, quote, then Tristan, unquote, right at this moment. So it may be that that's the way Puccini was thinking of this kiss, sort of like the love potion in, in Tristan. In any case, 
Turandot, having melted in Kalaf's arms, now begs him to leave and demand no more of her. Again, the prince surprises us by offering up his name so that Turandot can be the victor in this senseless battle of the sexes. But of course, she's now a changed woman. So no longer is she capable of hating men and demanding executions. So she announces that his name is Love and they live happily ever after. <laughs> Ta-da! There you have it. Now, my point in retelling this whole story is simply to show how deep a dramatic hole Puccini had dug himself into, or maybe I should say had to dig himself out of, because he, was, he didn't write the libretto, but how, how deep a hole he had to dig himself out of uh, before he even began writing a note of music. If the goal of opera is to use music to draw us into the characters so that we sympathize with their weaknesses, we cringe at their heroic um, and horrible choices of action, and finally we cry at the resulting tragedy, then it might seem as though nothing would rescue this plot from its banal triviality or the story's characters from their hollow insensitivity. But in fact, Puccini's music does just that. So let's take a look at what his musical magic consists of. In comparing his style to that of Verdi, we can hear right from the start of the opera some of this internationalization and modernization of Italian opera that took place around the turn of the century. Puccini begins with a short but forceful four-note melodic gesture in the orchestra, the opera's opening motif, which is on the back page of your handout. This idea here, just these four notes. Okay. Those four, those four notes make up that opening motive. Um, this motive, like the one that opens Tosca, is associated in a typically Wagnerian fashion with a particular person in the drama, in this case, of course, Turandot. It reappears at points in the drama or in the opera where her cruelty and obsessive hatred of men are the subjects at hand. Its presentation in the orchestra here also recalls Wagner in its use of powerful brass instruments and tremendous volume. And you'll hear that in just a second. Now, the modernization of Italian opera can also be seen in Puccini's harmony. The music that follows immediately after this four-note motif at the beginning establishes the mood of horror associated with the ritual of the three riddles, and it is clearly bitonal in nature. This means that the chords in this section imply two different tonal sections, uh, two different tonal centers, sorry. And this is the very first example at the top here. In the bass in the orchestra, you've got these notes, which outline D minor. And then in the upper instruments, you've got C sharp major. And so together, which gives you so you have a bitonal dissonant kind of complex at the very beginning of the opera, um, which of course is something that probably was only possible in 1924 after some of the modernism had happened ahead of Puccini. Now this bitonal sound itself becomes a unifying theme uh, in the opera, reappearing at several places. Uh, this is the opening motif with the following bitonal harmony. Here's the opening of the opera. Okay, now that same sound reappears in Act Two when Kalaf asks, asks to be given a chance to answer the riddles. And the Mandarin reads the rules of the game uh, and it's sung to this same bitonal accompaniment. So listen to this, same thing, Act Two.
And then Puccini opens the last act with the same bitonal material. At that point in the drama, Torrandot has just declared that there will be mass murders of the populace unless someone can come up with Kaloff's name. And so we get the same sound again in act three. The harmony itself becomes a kind of light motif or a rec recurring theme uh, that uh, occurs here, there, and there, and holds the whole thing together, and it has a significant meaning. It's not a melodic motif, but it's a harmonic motif, uh, and it's a very modern one at that. Now, another aspect of the opening light motif worth mentioning is its relationship to the compositional techniques of another modern composer, in this case, Claude Debussy. Here, I'm talking about Puccini's adoption of non-Western scales one of which is the unusual six-note scale made up of nothing but whole steps. And this is also in the first line here, right underneath the opening motif. Uh, the notes from that opening motif, that is the... are actually part of this scale, which is a whole tone scale, one of the things that Debussy used all the time. Um, very much a non-Western kind of uh, scale formation. Debussy employed this all over the place in his music for a kind of exotic sound. Puccini is obviously doing the same thing here for the exoticism of the sound of the whole tone scale. In addition, Puccini also relies on the pentatonic scale, um, which you can hear all over the place in this opera. The pentatonic scale is the scale we most often associate with Asian music. Um, here in the second line is a pentatonic scale that is a five-note scale. The black notes on the piano make a pentatonic scale. And you hear it in Liu's first big aria, uh, where she tries to convince Kaloff not to ask the riddles, and she sings... which is clearly a pentatonic melody. Uh, again, with Asian suggestions, and you hear that all over the place. So let's listen to uh, Liu's first big solo. We're going to the video now. This is uh, Leona Mitchell. This, by the way, the, the video we're using here is the old 1980s production, the first Zeffirelli production of this opera with Placido Domingo, um, Eva Marton doing The Princess, Leona Mitchell doing Liu, et cetera, et cetera. Um, absolutely wonderful. And I believe the production tonight is still the Zeffirelli production. They haven't changed that, which is good because it's a spectacular production. Okay, now as I explained earlier, most composers of opera were searching for ways of creating greater musical continuity in their work. Uh, Puccini was no exception in this case. You'll notice how few pauses there are in the musical flow of Turandot, thus preventing audiences from jumping in to applaud their favorite singer. As I also mentioned earlier, in connection with Verdi, this striving for continuity is not solely a Wagnerian characteristic, as so many of my opera students at MSM seem to think. In fact, Puccini's method of creating continuity is actually closer to Verdi than it is to the symphonic style of Wagner. Large sections of music are based, as in the case of Verdi's mature works, on some kind of a repeating melody in the orchestra while the voices engage in fairly uninteresting arioso. And then, as in Verdi, these sections eventually lead 
without a break to real moments of lyricism that are sometimes full-blown arias and other times only brief little moments, peaks of melodic uh, lyricism, as it were, um, where then Puccini brings in one of his great memorable tunes. A prime example of this kind of writing, this sort of lyricism out of arioso, is Turandot's famous act two aria, quote-unquote, in Questo Regia, um, in which she explains in front of Kaloff why she hates all men. This particular vocal piece is not actually an aria. It begins and continues for a long time in a fairly uninteresting vocal arioso. Nothing terribly interesting at all going on. Only at the end of the text that Puccini was setting did he allow himself to well up into truly magnificent tunefulness. Inquesta Regia is thus a prime example of how a glorious melody can rise seamlessly from a surrounding arioso texture in a way that doesn't break the melodic flow. Ironically, perhaps here, when these melodies do appear out of the arioso, they often appear in the orchestra, um, something that again reminds us of Wagner, orchestral motives, orchestral melodies. But unlike Wagner, Puccini usually allows the voice to double the orchestral part in places where he wants to create a maximum lyrical expressivity. And I'm going to show you how this works in a little example from Inquesto Regia. I have cut, in this case, most of the uninteresting arioso at the beginning, with just a little bit of that, and then right into the good stuff. So here we go.
great stuff but you see how it works the orchestra tune with the voices doubling in this case both voices doubling it's a powerful driving kind of melodic experience it's just absolutely terrific stuff Italian opera just wouldn't be Italian opera if there weren't some independent solo pieces like arias and duets and ensembles while Wagner had eliminated all such pieces in his sweeping attempt to reform opera into something more realistic at least in terms of how the drama unfolds, Italian composers like Verdi and Puccini were faced with a dilemma brought about by their conflicting needs for greater musical flow and continuity on the one hand and their love on the other hand of these concerted musical numbers in which the action stops and the singer elaborates in song on the depth of his or her feelings at the moment. As a result, the flow of a Puccini opera is somewhat illusory. Hidden behind the seamless orchestral music are many old-fashioned arias and duets of the kind Italian audiences always loved, some more obvious than others. Kaloff's famous Nessun Dorma at the beginning of Act Three is perhaps the most famous of these real Italian arias, but blended at both ends, the beginning and the end, into its surrounding musical context so as to make it less obvious and to keep the dramatic momentum moving forward in an uninterrupted fashion. This particular aria is introduced by an orchestral bridge, the kind we heard in Verdi's Otello just a little bit ago, um, which itself is a bridge from an offstage chorus ahead of it. So the offstage chorus is singing Nessun Dorma, then there's a little orchestral bridge over which um, you hear the tenor sing Nessun Dorma, and then we move right into the aria itself um, without any kind of a pause. So let's listen to the beginning of Nessun Dorma and the orchestral bridge that leads to it.
And we're going to pause here for just a second because I want to show you how the aria ends, or maybe I should say how it doesn't end. Here we have one of Puccini's greatest musical inventions, the orchestral postlude. The aria comes to a clear climax with a big closing cadence, at which point one would expect the whole thing to be over and for the audience to applause vigorously for the tenor. But Puccini keeps the music going after this final cadence with what is usually referred to as an orchestral peroration, a climactic repetition of the main tune of the aria in the orchestra, playing full out super fortissimo. Now, this is an extremely effective way to extend the climax of the aria by building this kind of instrumental bridge to the next musical number and to keep the audience from applauding. But of course, at the Metropolitan Opera, nothing will keep people from <laughs> applauding. <laughs> and so when, when Placido Domingo finishes the aria, the audience wells up in a huge round of applause right over top of the bridge, which is supposed to keep them from doing it. What can I say? All right, here we go, the non-end of the aria. So you can see how the music keeps going right into the next number. I guarantee tonight the same thing will happen. It's just, you know, no matter what Puccini tried to do, that's going to happen. Now, you may have noticed uh, by now that I have thus far begged the question of how this great music redeems the flagrant insensitivity of the hero uh, to the suffering of those around him. How does Puccini's music lead us into a sympathetic relationship with Kalaf? Can we understand through the music why he behaves the way he does? And I think we can. There is in all of Puccini's music a kind of searing emotional intensity. Kaloff is a man caught in the throes of an uncontrollable passion. He is effectively blinded by this passion to the needs of everyone around him. His totally irrational, overardent need to possess Turandot, to hope that she is something that she actually is not, um, is all part of Kaloff's tragic flaw. There is a tragic flaw here. And out of the actions that stem from this character flaw come the usual bad things that happen in a tragedy, in this case, Liu's death. The indifference, uh, I'm sorry, the difference between a true tragedy and a fairy tale, however, is that fairy tales always have happy endings. Indeed, Kaloff's irrational passion, captured so perfectly in some of this music, turns Turandot into a loving person and leads to the happy ending. It is Puccini's music that makes Kaloff's obsession with Turandot believable. Not anything in the text, it's the music, the passion of the music. With melodies that sort of touch our hearts and excite our passions, Puccini allows us to experience those emotions that the printed word alone can never capture. So through the power of music, all of our disbelief evaporates. The climax of the opera, of course, lies near the end, the final duet in which Turandot's resistance melts away under the extreme ardor of our hero. For the opera to succeed, Puccini's music must now make Turandot's transformation convincing. That is, it must lead us musically through her change of heart. Unfortunately, this is the part of the opera that Puccini did not write. 
He died before completing this part, before completing the end, uh, leaving us only a handful of sketches instead. What we hear today at the end of the opera is music written by Franco Alfano, who was a colleague of Puccini. Unfortunately, Alfano was no Puccini. And what the opera needs to make the fairy tale succeed is just what we're left without. Now, I don't mean, by the way, that Alfano was a hack. Uh, he was actually quite a competent composer, and he did about as well as anybody could do under the circumstances. Puccini broke off his work, as I told you before, after the death of Liu. This death scene contains much of the kind of music that I've just been talking about, music that has that is dramatically memorable, melodically memorable, um, that makes a situation understandable, that searing kind of music. And a fine example is Liu's Farewell to Life, um, which I'm going to play for you now. This is the kind of great music I'm talking about, and this is where Puccini stopped composing. But the opera, of course, doesn't end here. It doesn't end with the death of Liu, although maybe it should. The composer must get us through the final passionate scene in which Kalaf rips off Turandot's veil and dares to take her in his arms and kiss her. Her violent opposition and struggle is then instantly transformed, as if by magic, again Tristan, into tender acquiescence. But for this melodramatic end of the story, Puccini left nothing but a couple of sketches, as I mentioned earlier, and a note to himself that he must find yet another transcendent melody for this important duet. At the time of his death, Puccini had not found that melody, nor was Alfano able to do so despite some valiant efforts. This final duet is thus, thus dressed up with some music that was borrowed from earlier scenes in the opera, especially from Inquesta Regia, which you heard earlier, and some other music that simply seems to sort of flail about in a manner that sort of imitates something passionate, but without any real climactic effectiveness and without that really great show-stopping tune that's really needed to make the drama work. 
The other problem with Alfano's musical realization of this scene is that, as you will notice in the following example, the transformation of Turandot occurs almost instantly, as if something magical had happened when Kalaf kisses her. Now, I suppose that's okay if you think it's a magical moment, um, but otherwise it seems a little strange that one kiss is able to totally transform the woman. Um, nothing happens, it's just go bang. Let's take a look at this, the climax of this scene, and see what you think about the transformation. Now, you may disagree, of course, about the ineffectiveness of this part of the opera, um, as well as with my assessment that Turandot's transformation is a problem at all. Maybe you don't find it to be a problem. So let me offer you another controversial hypothesis about the ending of this opera, which you are, of course, also free to reject. <laughs> the prevalent fantasy about this opera is that Puccini was working feverishly toward its completion when death suddenly cut short his final inspiration. But it's more likely that Puccini failed to finish the opera not because death stole him away at the moment of epiphany, but rather because he himself was unable to find the right music to make the libretto convincing, that transcendent melody he said, I must find. Puccini reached the point where Liu stabs herself several years before his death. He then spent his remaining years searching unsuccessfully for the music that he needed to make an effective theatrical experience. So, we can't be too upset that Alfano's ending is maybe not the most effective thing we've ever seen, when Puccini himself was unable to solve the problem of how to bring the opera to a memorable close. Recognizing the problem here, the Italian composer Luciano Berrio tried in 2001 to improve what Alfano left us. Berrio's solution was to the transformation of Turandot was to make her change of character take place over a much longer period of time and to write enough music to allow us to feel the meltdown and the change. Uh, that is to sort of take us through the change of mood that might happen. Now, this is musically interesting, but dramatically on stage, I don't know how this could be handled. Um, so let's listen to Berio's moment of climax and see what he does.
Okay, now this goes on for about three or four minutes. Clearly, it's music which is more interesting in terms of its other moods, and it gives you a sense that this woman is going through a lot of different things in her brain and her heart. However, I've never seen this in production. I've only heard it. Uh, I can't imagine what the two of them are doing on stage for three or four minutes <laughs> while this music happens. There has to be something going on on stage. It's a nightmare from a dramatic stage production point of view. Now, while um, Berio's music may represent an improvement on Alfano's final duet, it still doesn't solve the problem of how to find that great tune that would galvanize the whole final scene. In defense of Alfano's completion of the opera, I can say that at least he had the common sense to borrow some of Kaloff's Nessun Dorma aria for the opera's final chorus. These final choral lines are a peon to love, and for the last words of the chorus, Gloria a te, Alfano borrows the melody that accompanied Vincero, Gloria a te, Vincero, meaning, of course, I have triumphed, glory to you, glory to love, sort of suggesting, I think, that perhaps love itself is the final victor in this. So let's look at the marvelous ending where Puccini, uh, sorry, Alfano borrows some of Puccini's greatest music. I must say you can't do much better than that. <laughs> That's just spectacular. Um, I want to remind you, the last section here calls to mind this idea of an international style of opera, which is part German, part Italian, part French. The French stuff here are two things. The huge choruses on which this opera relies are borrowed directly from French grand opera of the 19th century, including all the offstage stuff, which was a very popular French technique. And in addition to that, um, the scenic spectacle, uh, which the Zeffirelli production captures better than any other production I've ever seen. That was also a part of what French Grand Opera was all about. So I hope you enjoy this. It should be a fabulous evening for those of you who are going. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to episode 16 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you will take a moment to leave a comment and review in iTunes or consider donating to the continuation of the podcast at metguild.org podcast. Remember to head to the movie theater this Saturday, January 30th to see the Met live in HD broadcast of Turn Dot. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.